Hey guys, welcome to episode 38 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we start the show, we want to first thank this week's sponsors, Robinhood, Parcast Kingpin, and FabFitFun. Please be sure to check out the deals these sponsors have to offer. We promise you won't be disappointed by them. We also want to thank our listeners as always. The feedback on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher have been amazing. Eventually, we want to make this podcast a weekly thing. But until I finish grad school in March, it kind of has to stay bi-weekly because it's a lot of work. We have no choice. And John would have to listen to me be like a raging lunatic more than I already am right now. And I'm sure he doesn't want that. Nope, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So we also want to thank our Patreon supporters. And we will do so at the end of the show. If you are feeling generous and would like to help us through Patreon, and we swear even just donating a dollar helps, even if you think it doesn't, you can do so at patreon.com slash couple. If you do, you will get the backlog of Patreon episodes we released, as well as the new one we will be releasing later this week. Okay, so let's get into this week's show. The true crime community gladly welcomes the 1970s and 80s as the time when heinous crimes of some or most revered serial killers took place. I have even heard people refer to it as the golden age of true crime. I can agree with that, but of course, as always, we want to know why. Why does it seem like the majority of crimes that go down in the annals of true crime history exist within that 20-year gap? Sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists have weighed in on this issue. The potential answers seem to piece things together for us. Some say that it might be the result of war. Those who committed crimes during this time had dominant male figures in their lives that could have served or did serve during World War II, thus creating a household suspended in the traumas of war. Some even might have seen combat themselves during Vietnam, creating an apathy to death and destruction. However, it is a fact that many of our I guess what you can call known serial killers, did go to Korea or Vietnam, but they never saw action themselves. Psychologists have argued that it's not whether they saw combat or not, but rather that they witnessed the normalcy of violence and people in which they saw as being normal doing the same things that they wanted to do, thus giving them a green light for the violence that they had always wanted to commit at home. Another reason is that we as a society, and I don't just mean in the United States, I mean everyone, participates in less risky behavior now as we did back in the 70s and 80s. When we look back at that behavior, we all tend to cringe. Leaving doors unlocked, hitchhiking, these are just some of the risky behaviors that people don't really participate in any longer. Even though I guess Uber is kind of like cyber hitchhiking. I mean, people say that. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, their model is just like they try to make things convenient with time. You know, like that's what they, they pride themselves on. But like, there's like really no background checks on drivers for Uber. So yeah, so it's a I little. Can, I can see how people could be a little it's a little shaky. Yeah, I mean, there's they do know where you are kind of at all times, but mm, still a little shaky. But for the most part, we don't participate participate in those risky behaviors anymore because we've all heard the stories. Others attribute it to law enforcement at all levels being educated on the psychopathy of these killers. I think we all have seen Mindhunter on Netflix or Criminal Minds on TV, and these shows explain what happened. 
When the idea of a serial killer first existed, the country went into a frenzy. Believing a serial killer existed within every town. The influx of slasher films also didn't help that widespread belief. But the public and the media became fascinated with the idea of a serial killer. And the focus of the story became them, the killer. The names were given to the killers, making them almost famous, feeding their ego, and at times increasing the death toll. Even though at times the media knew that they were feeding into this, they knew that naming the serial killer and putting it in the headlines would sell their newspapers. However, as time went on, psychologists and those at the Behavioral Analysis Unit at the FBI learned that that is something we need to avoid. Let's not name the killer. Let's not exploit the victims and their families. Let's not feed the egos of these killers because all this does is just lead to more death and destruction. So what does all this mean? Well, maybe everything I just talked about were only small contributing factors, and the only reason we do not hear about serial killers anymore is because law enforcement just is not talking about them to the people of this country. Many investigative journalists dug into this after the capture of the Golden State Killer. One journalist, Stephanie Pappas, interviewed Thomas Hargrove, the founder of the Murder Accountability Project. And he states, of the 220,000 unsolved crimes that had been taking place since 1980, there are 1,400 instances that can link cases together based on DNA evidence. Meaning what? There are just as many at-large serial killers within the United States as we speak. However, a criminalist at Purdue University states that the number is far more conservative, probably around 115 dating back to the 1970s that haven't been caught. Pretty terrifying. <laughs> that is terrifying. Like 115, like even just one would be enough to make me kind nervous. Of put me on yeah. Edge. yeah. Either way, those numbers are really scary and keep paranoid people like me up at night all the time. So, why are we talking about all of this? Well, I just really wanted to take you back to the emotionality of the time period of the 1970s when our crime today is going to take place. If I were to cover this, like it were to be covered in a 1970s mindset of kind of glorifying the killers, I would cover it from their perspective and what horrific things they did to the victims. However, the book that I used to help me with the research of this case has been celebrated as the first true crime book to talk about the victims, center around them, their lives, and their battle for survival. And this is despite being written, written in the 1980s, when it still was that time to glorify the killer. So this is a book way before its time, especially when it comes to the sensitivity of the victim. And the book I'm talking about is Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder. So let's get into this week's case of the Hi-Fi Murders. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Ogden, Utah of today can be seen as a mirror image of the city that it was back in 1974. Although much has happened since the horrific crimes occurred in the city on April 22, 1974, the dynamics, as in many towns in the United States, has remained the same. 
Today, after the town had hosted the events of the 2002 Olympics, there was just a few events from the Olympics that were in the town, not the whole thing was there. It is now seen as a resort town. The rich visit and stay at the Snow Basin Resort and fall in love with the community, and they finally make the decision to call it home themselves. Many college students who go to nearby universities are also attracted to the charm of the area and decide to relocate there and call Ogden home. But as the rich and well-educated move in, the town becomes further divided, just as it had been in the 1970s. The gap between rich and poor was large, a gap which was highlighted by the town's downtown area, where the rich shopped and the poor drank. And that is exactly what the staff of the St. Benedict's Hospital Emergency Room thought they were going to treat when they received a barely audible call come in from first responders that they were three minutes out with two patients who suffered from gunshot wounds coming from downtown just before 11 p.m. They thought a drunken dispute might have gotten out of hand. However, what arrived on the stretchers was the worst thing the doctors had ever seen in their career. When the doctors were called seeing the patients for the first time, they remember making a quick assessment. The first victim was a young teenage boy. What little skin is visible beneath blood and vomit is ashen gray and blue. He has a gunshot wound to the back of his head, and he is gasping for breath, as if he was trying to breathe through a straw. The second victim was a woman. However, by looking just at her head, they thought that she was a man at first. Her light blonde hair was so matted to her head with blood that it looked as if she was bald. The doctors knew otherwise because of the fancy clothes she wore and a large diamond wedding ring and a jade ring on the other hand that she must be a woman. She wasn't gasping for breath like the other victim, but making occasional, shallow, guttural breaths. When the doctor tried to insert breathing tubes down the throats of the victims, they noticed what they could not see before because of the blood. There was a deep reddening around their mouths. When the mouths of the patients were opened, the doctors saw raw, deep blisters and blocked airways caused by swollen, bloody throats. As the doctors pushed the tubes into the tracheas, their throats began to ooze a bloody pink froth that seemed to endlessly foam out of their mouths. The patients are brought into two separate rooms. The doctor with the woman took one look at the x-rays of her head, and his heart sunk. The bullet that had entered her brain, just above her right ear, had split in two. One of the pieces went forward, and the other veered downward, towards her brain stem. He's then going to tell the nurses and the technicians in the room that this woman will not survive, and the boy needs their help. The second doctor confirms that her blood pressure is so low, he can't even get a reading. He orders one of the technicians that he should stop pumping oxygen into the lungs of who they were calling Mary Doe. After the tech stopped squeezing the bag, Mary Doe made no attempt to breathe on her own, and her time was called. The doctors rushed across the hall to look at the boy. The nurses were working tirelessly. First, they squeezed the bag to allow oxygen into John Doe's throat. Then, they had to remove the bag to suction the foam the oxygen caused from his mouth, then back again to pump more oxygen in. But the nurses were fighting a losing battle. As time went on, the bubbles were flooding the patient's airways, faster and faster and redder and redder. 
Eventually, the boy was given a tracheotomy, and the nurses were instructed to flush his trachea with alcohol, which turned the bubbles to liquid, but this forced them to stay with John Doe continuously. Every time the boy attempted to take a breath, the now liquid would explode three feet in the air, covering the walls, the ceiling, and the nurse's clothing. The nurses commented that the substance coming from the victim's throat smelled so strange, like something they'd never smelled before. They needed to keep him stable until it stopped so that the doctors could operate. Before he left, the doctor scribbled the following entry for the next doctor of John Doe. It read, Young white male with gunshot wound in rear occipital lobe has had trach through which there are copious pink frothy secretions, breathing vigorously but totally unresponsive, pupils dilated and fixed, impression, terminal head injury. Before he left, the doctor told the nurses not to resuscitate the boy if he stops breathing on his own. Okay, so before we go on with the story, let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor, Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Robinhood is dedicated to making financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. We always wanted to invest our money and not just keep it in savings, but we didn't know anything about the stock market. Robinhood was the perfect solution. The app's easy-to-understand charts and market data allows us to understand what a good investment is. We are also able to place a trade in just four easy taps on our phones, and choosing what stock to pick is easy with the Robinhood web platform, which allows you to view stock collections. For example, the 100 most popular, entertainment, social media, or curated categories like female CEOs. Each stock also has an analyst rating ready for your viewing so you know whether to buy, hold, or sell. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profit. Robinhood has an amazing deal for true crime couple listeners. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build their portfolio. Sign up at tccouple.robinhood.com. That's tccouple.robinhood.com. We promise you'll love Robinhood. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. At this point, the only thing that was known about John and Mary Doe was that they were picked up from the hi-fi shop in downtown Ogden. They, along with one other, were the only survivors. It just so happened that one of the employees of the hospital used to date the cousin of the owner of the hi-fi shop. They asked him if the boy looked familiar. He quickly confirmed that he did know the boy. He was the brother of the girl he dated. His name was Courtney Naisbitt. As soon as he revealed this information, everyone in the room took an intake of breath. That meant that he was by Naisbitt's boy. Byron Naisbitt was an obstetrician at the same hospital. Everyone knew the Naisbitt family. Every doctor was called. They needed to know that this was Bai's boy. So what had happened at the hi-fi shop in downtown Ogden? that would produce the crisis that St. Benedict's was now facing. Courtney Naisbitt 
was running errands on April 22, 1974, in downtown Ogden on Washington Boulevard. He was excited because that day, he had flown his first solo flight. First, he had to pick up developed photos for his parents who had recently traveled to Hong Kong. And now he needed to go to the Hi-Fi shop, a radio store owned by his cousin. His cousin was out of town, and he knew the store was being run by two young clerks, Stan Walker and Michelle Ainsley. He just wanted to thank them for letting him park his car in the back of the shop while he was out picking things up for his parents. But there seemed to be something wrong. It was close to closing time, and the two clerks should have been ringing up their receipts from the day. He checked, and the records weren't even put back into their sleeves. Weird, he thought, as he walked further back into the narrow, dark store. Eventually, he saw Stan, standing right by the basement door. Courtney yelled out, Thanks for letting me park behind the store. And Stan yelled for him to stop walking forward. But confused, Courtney kept walking. And Stan yelled, Stop, Courtney. He's going to shoot you. Courtney didn't understand the situation he had walked into. And he thought that Stan was joking. He continued to walk down the basement stairs, where he was met by a tall black man aiming a gun right at Courtney's face. Courtney put up his hands, all of his bags falling down the stairs. And I'm not sure what he really meant by this, but Courtney's response was, Geez, if you hadn't said anything, I never would have known you had a gun. Hmm. So I thought I thought that was a little weird. That was a little weird. I can't really make sense of that, but he's also a 16-year-old boy. So, That's true. I mean, I don't want to put too much thought into it. Whatever it meant, the man with the gun didn't like it. And he punched Courtney in the stomach, kneed him in the groin, and threw him down the stairs, where another man was waiting. This man was about 5'5". Five five. The man tied Courtney's hands together with a plastic speaker wire, and bound his feet. Courtney noticed that the man was walking very specifically. He had, he had a very, like, exaggerated posture, and it was something that was highlighted by, like, his short stature. So that's just something that Courtney is going to notice, yeah. yeah. Before he knew it, Stan was tied up too, facing him in the storage basement of the shop. Stan was 20 years old and described as being a very large, muscular boy. Courtney's cousin, Brett, who owned the store, had put Stan in charge of the shop while he was in San Francisco. Stan was placed next to Michelle, a 19-year-old girl who had just started working at the shop a week ago to start paying for her upcoming wedding. She was bound just like the boys were. So now there's three downstairs, 20-year-olds, a 19-year-old, and a 16-year-old, and they're being held captive by two men. The three laid on the floor for two hours as they heard moving, talking, and clanking above, as one of the men stayed down, pointing a gun at them the entire time. So the tall man stayed downstairs, and the boys were pleading with them to just let them go. Stan promised the man that he would not tell anyone. He could take whatever he wanted, and he would give police a false description. After a while of listening, the tall man with the gun went upstairs to check on his partners. It seemed as if they were filling up cars with merchandise, driving away, and then coming back to pick up more. 
Before the tall man could get up the stairs, the smaller man came back running down the stairs, and the two of them waited quietly on the stairs, listening carefully. Then they all heard it, the door to the hi-fi shop slowly opening. Whoever it was walked around the hi-fi shop. Courtney heard their footsteps above his head. As relief flooded his body that someone was here to help them, he saw the shorter man walking slowly up the stairs with his gun in front of him. Once he reached the top, he heard who was ever in the store gasp. The taller assailant, who was now behind the shorter man, yelled, What are you doing here, man? And a husky man was brought down the stairs. Courtney did not know who he was. Stan, in almost a whisper, said, Why'd you have to come down here, Dad? So that was Stan's dad. Are you serious? Yeah, obviously going to check on his boy, and then now he's brought back down to the basement, oh, too. Oh, man. So they're just pretty much gathering everybody that comes into the hi-fi store. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So as soon as Stan said that, the shorter man shot the acoustic wall in frustration. Twice. Now, the what they had done is, like, unscrew the light bulb, so when the gun goes off, it's kind of like... This, like, flash of light that they get to see. So the tall man is going to yell at the shorter one. What did you do that for? And this caused Michelle and Courtney to just start screaming. Screaming about how they don't want to die, how they're too young to die. And it's making the, the shorter man more and more frustrated. Courtney had no idea that as that was happening, as Stan's 43-year-old father, Oren Walker, had come to check on him, Something similar was also occurring at his own house. Courtney was expected home. On that very day, he had flown his first soloed flight. His parents were going to celebrate with him at dinner, and he was supposed to go out afterwards with his friends. As his parents sat with their other older son, Gary, at the dinner table, they commented on how weird it was that Courtney didn't call. The one who was most worried about this, of course, was Courtney's mother, Carol. She wanted to go and see if Courtney was with Brent at the hi-fi shop or if he was with some friends at the local college. So she wanted to go down and just make sure that he was all right. But her husband told her not to worry. And her son and her husband are kind of going to joke with her about this, about how she like worries too much and that she needs to just calm down. But she had a gut feeling as a mother. And while her son and her husband are in the den, she's going to quietly slip out of the house and get into the car to make sure that her youngest son was okay. That is a very concerned mother. Yes. Very concerned. So back at the shop, the shorter of the two men was becoming increasingly more agitated. He went upstairs and back outside. He returned with a container nearly a foot high wrapped in a brown paper bag and green cup. They poured the substance in the container into the green cup and told Oren, Stan's father, to drink. He refused. Michelle asked him what was in the cup, and one of the men replied that it was a mixture of vodka and a German drug. Still, Oren refused to drink. Becoming frustrated with the man, they gave up and just tied him up like the others were. Courtney overheard the taller man tell the shorter man that he didn't want to go through with this, that he was chicken. 
but in the middle of their conversation, the back door of the hi-fi shop burst open. It was Carol Naisbitt, looking for her son. As soon as she opened the door and walked into the shop, she had a revolver pointed at her head. The taller man, who had run up the stairs, yelled out for the second time that night, What are you doing here? She snapped back quickly, I'm checking on my son. And she was also brought down into the basement. So these two really just have, like, the whole town in the basement, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's, I mean, as disgusting and horrific as this crime is going to become, it's almost like a comedy of errors, right? Yeah, it like, is. they just, they keep messing up, and they're getting more and more frustrated, and I don't even think they planned well for what they were going to do with two people, and now they have five. Which is insane. It's like the Three Stooges, man. It's, yeah. It's insane. The five victims lay on the floor, now in silence as the short man is pacing around the basement. Finally, after what felt like hours, but was more realistically like minutes, he walked over to that weird blue liquid again that was in the green cup. The man walked back across the room, the cup in his hand. He knelt next to Carol, propped her into a sitting position, and put the rim of the cup to her lips. We're going to have a little cocktail party, he said. I don't drink, said Carol. You will drink this, said the man, and he seized the back of her head. The cup pressed against her teeth. What is it, she asked. It's vodka and some kind of German drug, said the taller man. It'll just put you to sleep. Courtney heard his mother swallow the liquid in a large gulp. Then she choked and began coughing loudly, spewing the liquid from her mouth and nose. The man lowered her to the carpet again, where she lay, still heaving and spitting. Afterwards, the small man went to the taller man and had the cup filled up again. The man lifted Courtney into sitting position. The edge of the cup was put to his lips. The man grabbed the back of his neck tighter and tighter. As the liquid approached his lips, the fumes were making him nauseous. As it passed through his lips, they felt like they were on fire. Courtney had to open his mouth. He wanted to just get it over with. He opened his mouth and the liquid poured in till it overflowed onto his chin. His throat flexed and with a jerk of his head, he swallowed. The liquid scorched his throat and oozed into his chest. He gagged, coughed violently, and vomited as the man lowered him to the carpet. His mouth and esophagus were inflamed, and the burning was beginning to drip into his stomach. As Courtney laid on his side, vomiting, profusely sweating, and his chest rolling into convulsions, he could hear his mother moaning, and with tears rolling from his eyes and sores forming around his lips, he saw the man again get the cup filled up. The smaller man, with great effort, pulled Stan into sitting position. Stan also swallowed from the cup. As he did so, he began explosively spitting. Next was Michelle, but her coughing and spitting was different than the others. It was quieter. Next, it was Oren Walker's turn. He did not fight, but he took the liquid. The burning he felt in his mouth was excruciating. When the smaller man walked away, Oren spit out the liquid behind his shoulder onto the green shag carpet and began coughing, vomiting, 
spitting and convulsing like he saw the other hostages do. So he was, he, he wouldn't take the liquid. So he kept it in his mouth and like spit it out when he wasn't well, when they looking. Weren't looking. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause he knew obviously whatever these people were drinking was really bad. Oh yeah. The cup was filled up a sixth time and Stan was given another cup causing him to violently vomit on the floor over and over again. His vomit turning it deep, deep red. The two men spoke quietly to each other. They then walked over to each victim and tried to duct tape their mouths shut. However, the spitting, vomiting, and sores around their mouths would not allow the tape to stick. It would later be learned that the viscous blue liquid that was forced into the mouths of the victims was Drano. So the whole time you were telling me this, or telling us this, right? I knew it was Drano. Yeah, it's bad. I, I had a feeling it was Drano. You didn't think it was vodka with a German drug? Well, first I thought, <laughs> could it be like, you know, cyanide? That would cause foaming. But then I said, no, but it's it, not easy yeah. for someone to have cyanide. So just especially that much. It was like a right. foot high container. Right. So yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, Drano's, that's pretty instant. <laughs> it's pretty terrible. It's a terrible Horrible. way to go. So, and that explains why when the, the two victims were brought to the hospital, that when they were pumping the oxygen, it was just causing bubbles to foam. Right, because it was so much probably consumed. It, yes. That they couldn't rinse it out no yeah. matter what. That's why the alcohol was helping turn it to liquid, and then suction it out was the best thing that they could do at the hospital. But still, their esophagus and the lining of their throats are destroyed. The two men then went upstairs, and with surgical gloves, they cleaned all of their prints from the shop. They headed back downstairs and took the wallets from all the male hostages and the purses from the women. However, they left the expensive jewelry. Carol was wearing a Rolex, a large diamond ring, and a large jade ring. And Michelle had two rings, her diamond engagement ring and a ruby ring. The two men had a low conversation. But the hostages all heard the taller man finally yell, No, I can't do it, man. I'm scared. And the shorter man snapped back, Okay, give me 30 minutes. And the tall man went upstairs, and he bolted the door shut. The short man walked around slowly, listening to the shallow breathing of the five hostages. Courtney heard the man stop at his mother. He heard the gun cock, and before he knew it, there was an explosion in the dark room. The immediate blast of light allowed Courtney to see his mother get shot in the back of the head and the blood stained the carpet right in front of his face. The man then walked towards him, feeling for his head in the dark with the hot muzzle of the gun. Once he found it, he pulled the trigger and the body of the teenage boy who just took his solo flight that day went limp. The man rose a second time, and continued walking around the room. He walked back and forth between Michelle, Oren, and Stan Walker. He stopped in front of Oren, and he attempted to shoot him in the head as well. However, because of the dark, he missed and shot the floor next to him. He then walked to his son, Stan, and this time he connected. He shot the boy in the back of the head. And before the screaming of Michelle stopped, the short man had ran back up the stairs. Michelle whispered in the dark, Stan, are you okay? And he was miraculously still alive. 
I've been shot, he replied back. And a few minutes later, the man came back down the stairs. He walked right to Oren Walker. This time, he didn't shoot the floor. He shot him in the head. But this didn't kill him. In fact, the bullet only grazed his skull. But he tried as hard as he could to stay together and pretend to be dead. Oren is probably the luckiest person that I have ever heard of. Well, and he's also like, you know, he's playing the game to survive. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, he's doing a great job acting as if he is dying, you Mm -hmm. know? So, like I said, he's extremely lucky. I mean, he spit out the liquid. You know, he he dodged a bullet, literally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's probably the luckiest person I've ever heard of that's ever had to deal with something like that. Yeah, I think that, like, also, he, his emotionality isn't there like it is with the others. I I don't think that Carol Naisbitt had even time to kind of assess the situation and try and go into survival mode because they took her out pretty quickly. I don't think any of them really did. But, But I think he was there, like okay, what can I do? Like, he was thinking, well, they were still teenagers. You know what I mean? Right. It's a little different. I, mean, I don't think anybody had time down there to to prepare. But he did. But I feel like he definitely did. But I think you're right. Maybe the fact that he... He's older. He's 46. True. But he also didn't show as much emotion, maybe, as the others. And that's kind of maybe why as well. Like, yeah. that they didn't kind of, like, focus on him so much. Well, if you notice that they really haven't focused on Michelle a lot because they have other plans for her. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because remember, she didn't choke as much on the lick. They didn't put as much... He, well, he, I don't want to keep saying they, the shorter of the men put less liquid down Michelle's throat. Okay. And hasn't shot her yet. Has shot everyone but Michelle. So as Oren is going to... I mean, he, he did get grazed by the bullet, but he's bleeding profusely from his head. So he's losing a lot of blood. So in order to stay focused and to stay awake, he just starts repeating his timetables in his head. Like, two times two is four, two times three is six. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. He's, like, trying to study, you know, he's <laughs> yeah. losing blood, but he's still there. He's ready, and he keeps wiggling his fingers and his toes. I would. I always had trouble with the sevens and eight times table. I would just give up. I would skip to right to nine. Let's just not it's even go rough. there with me. You don't even <laughs> want to know. So after all of that, let's take a break to hear about another podcast that we promise you'll love. If you're a fan of the True Crime Couple podcast, we know you would enjoy the true crime stories that shine a light on the darkest corners of humankind. Lurking in the shadows, behind the petty criminals and the amateur thieves, are the masterminds of the criminal underworld. In Kingpins, a new podcast from Parcast that I love, they take a deep dive into the minds and stories of the men and women who call the shots and rule the crime world. Each episode of Kingpins goes deep inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to expose what it takes for a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top of the underworld, and they will eventually fall. Using extensive research, Kingpins analyzes the leader of a crime syndicate and profiles the outrageous people and skewed relationships behind organized crime. Kingpins will reveal what kind of person is drawn to the world of organized crime, what it takes to ascend within the crime organization, and what it takes to bring them down. Episodes on Frank Lucas and Richard the Iceman Kuklinski are available right now. Look for upcoming episodes on Pablo Escobar, 
Freeway Rick Ross, and Queenie St. Clair. New episodes come out every Friday. Search for Kingpins wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's K-I-N-G-P-I-N-S. Or visit parcast.com slash kingpins to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T, dot com slash kingpins to listen now. Okay, let's get back to the show. Where we left off, the killer did not know that, in fact, he had only killed one person. Despite being shot in the head, Carol, Courtney, and Oren were still alive. Stan had died of blood loss, and Carol, although everyone thought she was dead, still had a pulse. Michelle was begging for her life. Silently, the man untied her feet and hands and made her walk to the dark back corner of the basement. He forced Michelle to take off her clothes. He then sexually assaulted her for 20 minutes. Afterwards, she asked him if she could go to the bathroom. She was playing things safe and thought that this could be her way out of things. He had untied her, so maybe he trusted her. She didn't fight him. She let him do what he needed to do. She was trying to earn his trust. As he stood over her, as she was going to the bathroom, she looked up at him and tried to joke with him. I sure had to go, didn't I? She said. But if she was trying to joke, he couldn't tell. Her voice was so low and raspy from the Drano. The man had made her return to her place on the floor, between Stan and his father. She was only wearing her socks. When the man went back upstairs, she whispered to Oren, who she heard breathing, Hey, are you okay? Oren couldn't respond, but he kept moving his eyes, hoping that she could see. And when the man returned, Oren Walker felt hands grasp around his neck. They were checking for a pulse. The flashlight was shown down on his eyes, moved away and then moved back, moved away and then moved back, checking to see if his pupils were responding. But he couldn't even respond if he wanted to. He then heard a gunshot go off and the soft moaning of Michelle. She was slowly dying next to him and the man left again. So see, he was playing mind games with them. As Michelle thought that he was trying to check Oren for a pulse without even thinking, he just lifted his arm up and shot her in the head. That's crazy. I mean, this is like, I mean, well, first of all, I just want to say this. You would think that if you just turned the fucking light on, like they would, they would, all of them would not have had a chance at all. Like not even a little bit. Right. I, but I think, I think it was part of the game. I think so too. I think that everybody being in the dark and everything like that, that's kind of psychological. But for everything that was done, I think that this guy is the worst criminal in the world. I mean, the Drano, he has a gun. They're all tied up and he can't kill them. No, no, it's It's bizarre. He used so many different things to kill them. (laughs) Well, he's going to come back again. And this time, a cord is slipped around Oren's neck, and Oren's body hung limp, weighing against the man's efforts to lift him. As the loop closed around his throat, he carefully expanded only the muscles in his neck until he felt his skin tighten. The man cinched the cord hard and then cinched it again and again until it dug into Oren's bulging flesh and squeezed against his windpipe. 
but when the man had yanked the cord tighter for the last time and finally lowered him back to the carpet, Oren slowly released his neck and found that this allowed him enough air to stay alive. Isn't that crazy? That is the ultimate survivor right there. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this. He's giving Liam Neeson a run for, run his, for money his money. Run for his money. Hell yeah. <laughs> he continued to play dead, breathing shallowly. As he heard the man's footsteps, once again, he ascended the stairs. The basement was silent. Above, he could hear footsteps. They came back down the stairs again. Oren laid on his side and collapsed. As he lay, not moving, he felt something brush against his left earlobe. Then, a ballpoint pen was wedged into his ear and jammed down his ear canal. The man's feet shuffled slightly. One foot shot up and stomped the end of the pen, driving it deeper into Orrin's head. Again, the foot raised up and pounded the pen. The third time the pen was kicked, Orrin felt the point enter his throat. He lay motionless on the ground. Yeah. Okay, well, this is terrible. This guy is being put through hell. Hell. And it's and really... And he's still alive. It's, it's crazy. After the man was satisfied with Oren not moving, he's going to leave. But he doesn't realize that Carol Naisbitt, Courtney Naisbitt, and Oren are still alive. In fact, he only killed Michelle... Ainsley, and Stan Walker. And after he left, in the darkness of his corner, Courtney moved. Despite a bullet in his brain, he twisted his body until his head was pointed towards the stairs, and he began crawling. As he crawled, his eyes were open, and from his throat gurgled the growl of an animal. His hands and feet still bound, he slid his body inch by inch across the carpet towards the bottom of the stairs. Crazy, right? It's crazy. I mean, once again, this is survival. Unfortunately, it's it's sickening to even hear, really. But, I mean... The, the spirit of these people to survive it, is... Absolutely. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. It's almost like in that episode when the man's throat was cut and then he got yeah. out. At 10.30 that night, Ogden police officers were going to investigate what was reported as unknown trouble at 2323 Washington Boulevard, the hi-fi shop. As they pulled up to the shop, they were approached by a boy yelling, they're inside, they're inside. One officer went inside as the other stayed. Besides the boy, there was a man and a woman walking back and forth in front of the store. It looked like the man had a pen sticking out of his ear. As the police officer got closer, he realized the man's hair was matted to his skull with blood. A lot of blood. And he just kept repeating, they're downstairs, four of them, they're all shot. Wow. So he, Oren Walker even is going to get up. And After able, all that. Yeah. After all that. That's insane. The two officers went down to the basement, as the man had instructed them to. As they were headed down the stairs, they shone their flashlights into the darkness. The two men were startled when they saw a blonde boy at the foot of the stairs, 
covered in blood and vomit. At first they thought he was growling like a dog, but upon further inspection they realized he was just trying to breathe. They went over to Stan and Michelle. They were no longer breathing or had a pulse. They took Carol's pulse, and it was there, extremely faint, but she was still alive. They called an ambulance that would later take the mother and son to St. Benedict's Hospital. As the officers were trying to offer first aid to the victims, who were alive, the injured man came back down the stairs. He was frantic. The officers asked him who did this, and his direct quote was, Two Negroes. The man was rummaging through the tools on a workbench and started cutting the wire on the dead boy's hand. He kept yelling, This is my son. I need to save my son, as he was sobbing. The officers got the man out of the basement as paramedics arrived. They waited outside as the victims were taken care of. They were questioning the people that had called the police and the hysterical man with the pen sticking out of his ear. Apparently, when Stan did not come home for dinner, his father went out to look for him. A little after 10, when her husband had not returned with their son, she took her 16-year-old son to find out what was going on. So it was Stan's mother and other brother that went to go look for him and his father. Okay. They checked the hi-fi shop, and what they found was horrific. As Oren Walker began to tell his story, the officers could hardly look at him. Every time he had to swallow, the pen would rise about an inch out of his ear and then go back inside. After he gave his story, Oren was taken to the hospital as well, but not the same, to a different hospital, McKay Hospital. Byron Naisbitt was only made aware of the shootings in Ogden when his friend from Salt Lake City called, telling him about the crimes being on the news. His friend told him that the shootings happened at his nephew's hi-fi shop. He thanked his friend and quickly got off the phone. He recalled his night thus far. After his wife slipped out of the house without himself or his son Gary knowing, she came back yelling that he wasn't at the local college or with any of his friends and that something was wrong. He and his son assured her that she's just worrying too much. Crying and visibly upset, he let his wife leave again. This time she was yelling that she was going to look for him at the hi-fi shop. He couldn't move. Was his wife and youngest son okay? Byron drove downtown and he found his wife's station wagon and his son's car outside of the shop. He began yelling that he needed to get in. His wife and his son were in there. He knew it. And in small town fashion, as the police officers held him back, Robert Newey stepped forward. He's the county prosecutor. The county prosecutor wanted to be there for the collection of evidence, to ensure that everything was done by the book. He knew Byron Naisbitt. They went to high school together. They were friends. Courtney swam competitively with Newey's son. And he said to Byron, you can't go in there. I know they are in there. Their cars are here, he said. I promise you they're not in there, Bye. They've taken a woman and a boy, a young boy, to Benedict's. I don't know if it's them, but they aren't here. Newey had never seen a worse scene, and he was nervous that if Byron saw it, he would go crazy knowing what happened to his wife and son. But he was losing ground, and he knew, as a husband and as a father, he would want to see. So Newey told the officer that he could go down as long as he didn't touch anything. 
and when Byron ran down the stairs, the first thing he remembered seeing was the naked body of young Michelle Ainsley, and thoughts of what could have happened to his wife began flashing through his own head. When he later recalled looking upon the scene, this is what he said. When I got downstairs, I saw the girl. I saw the other fellow, both lying there, dead. I didn't know the circumstances, and the cops weren't anxious to say. They just said the other parties had gone to the hospital. The younger fellow and the lady down to Benedict's, and the man had gone to McKay. They described the lady and the boy, and then I knew for sure that my wife and Court were there, that they'd been victims. Then I got a little ray of hope, both because they were alive when they were taken out. And this is actually really interesting because when I was reading the the book, when the doctors were trying to work on Courtney Naisbitt, two of the doctors were called out for an emergency at McKay Hospital, which actually ended up turning out to be Orrin Walker that they had to go help. So that was just like a crazy circumstance where the doctors in this small town area really had like limited resources well they were probably also because she was the one that had the x-ray done correct no oh uh, i'm sorry no you're thinking of carol Nesbitt. okay carol okay courtney, courtney. Nesbitt. that was all of the doctors were working on him but right. two of them were called to mckay because of another emergency that emergency was trying to get the pen out of orrin walker's throat yeah. They, well, that day must have been really rough. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Right. Craziness. After Byron saw the scene, he headed directly to St. Benedict's, where he was greeted by the doctor. He breathlessly asked, my family, are they here? Now, don't forget, they all know him. Courtney is in the ICU, the nurse responded to him. And Naismith sprinted to the third floor. An x-ray technician that was there when the bodies were brought in and knew the doctor well ran after him. The two waited in the elevator, out of breath. Naisbitt looked at the tech. He said, they didn't say anything about my wife. Is she serious? And he answered, I'm sorry, sir. She's dead. Why didn't someone call me? He yelled. And we tried, I promise. That's what the tech said. Because at the point where they found out that it was Courtney Naisbitt and that the woman in the morgue was his mother... He had already gone to the scene, so he couldn't be reached. They reached the floor, and Naisbitt all but fell in the arms of the doctors who had been taking care of his son. Jess, he asked, what's going on with my family? And Jess is the main doctor that's in control of taking care of Courtney. Come with me, he said. I've been trying to call you since we found out that this was Courtney. And they rushed down the hall together. He saw his son in the room. Red foam rising from his mouth. Red sores around his lips, his body a blue-gray. He looked dead. The doctor slowly explained to him, Your son has been shot. He has a bullet in his head. It looks like he drank some kind of acid. And this is when Byron lost it. Acid? What's going on here? What happened? The doctor reassured him, We don't know what happened, but we're treating the burns around his mouth and shooting alcohol in his throat to stop the bubbles. Despite the shooting, his pupils are finally able to react. He began asking for his wife. He didn't want to believe that she was dead. The doctor quietly asked him, Does your wife have a jade ring? Yes, he said. I got it for her when we were in Hawaii last year. She never takes it off. When the doctor's head sunk, Byron knew for sure that his wife was dead. And the last time he saw her, they were fighting, and she was crying, and he hated himself for that. 
Byron recalls his feelings when having to identify the body of his wife. That's a shock. That's a shock no one can describe. Here's your wife that you've known and loved and lived with and raised your family with and shared experiences with nearly all your life. And here she is. She looks grotesque. She hasn't been cleaned up. I don't know how you describe the feeling. I don't know how in the hell you can describe feelings that rip your guts. It's remorse and despair and agony in your heart. You get a real pain in your chest. When you hear someone say they've got a heartache, they've got a heartache. A heartache. It aches. It hurts. It pains. It throbs. When I look at my wife, I had real pain in my heart. That's where the feelings and thoughts were, down in that basement. My wife and son, the victims. What was going through their minds? Lord, the fear and the terror and the torture. They didn't care what happened to my wife and son. Pouring acid down their throats and then shooting them. You can face a lot of things, but when somebody's abusing you at their own whim and in their own fashion, that's terror and that's torture, and no one should have to experience it in a lifetime. No one should. I can't believe that. It's out of my realm of thinking. Someone takes you and ties you up and makes you helpless, then terrorizes you and you're completely at their mercy. They have no feelings for you. They don't care. They've already decided what they're going to do with you. And then they take their own sweet time and torment you. No one should have that right over another person. No one. I don't and I can't believe that that could ever happen. I had a family of six. Now two. A third of my family is gone. Wiped out. But Byron was wrong there. The innocence of Courtney may have died in the basement that night. But he did not. Courtney was up in the ICU fighting for his life. And Byron, although full of grief, realized this too. He added, Suddenly I realized that my son was alive upstairs. And that brought some hope. And I was anxious to see how he was doing. And if there was anything I could do. He had looked dead. And nobody would tell me if he would be alive by the morning. But it gave me something to hold on to. Something to hope for. I had terrible feelings about how a kid could be put through that kind of stuff. But at least he was alive. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our final sponsor, FabFitFun. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box that is delivered four times a year with full-size fashion, beauty, home, fitness, and wellness products for just $49.99 a box. Do you love discovering new products? Are you a beauty and fashion maven constantly on the hunt for the next best thing? Ever pin something to your Pinterest board that you've always wanted to try but never have? Then you must try FabFitFun. FabFitFun allows women everywhere to discover new products and must-have brands that you know and love. FabFitFun always delivers full-size products to you, never sample sizes. In my last FabFitFun box, the Fall Editor's Edition, I received so many amazing products. It was never-ending happiness going through that box. In this box, I received the Crown Brush 6-piece brush set in black and rose gold. I love the brushes and the travel case that came in even more. Last night, I slept with the Free People Understated Vegan Leather Eye Mask, and that comes with a cooling insert that made me look so refreshed in the morning. I know this one's going to be a lifesaver. FabFitFun is offering True Crime Couple listeners an amazing deal. Sign up for FabFitFun today. FabFitFun boxes are amazing and always sell out. 
So use our code TCC to get $10 off your first box. Go to fabfitfun.com to sign up and start getting a box for a life well lived. Use promo code TCC to get $10 off of your first box. Again, that's over $200 for only $39.99. If you just use TCC and get your first FabFitFun box at fabfitfun.com today. Okay, let's get back to the show. After being treated for his injuries and having minor surgery to remove the pieces of the bullet from his skull, Oren Walker is going to give additional statements to detectives now working the case. He describes the two black men that had held him and four others captive, murdering three of them. He said they were two black men, one short and one tall. The tall had fine features and he had a light skin tone. He said the shorter man had a very dark skin complexion and he was very husky. His face was rounder than the other man's. He said that it looked like the men were both in their early 20s and they both wore their hair in very well-trimmed short afros. He said that he remembered that the van that was pulled up to the back of the store was light-colored. After the detectives working the case got the eyewitness testimony he needed, he returned to the scene. When he did this, he was met by a member of the tactical team. This was retired detective, newly retired detective, Don Moore. And Don Moore relayed a story to him from about six months ago. This whole scene reminded him of something. It all sounded like another man he knew, who was a stone-cold killer. A killer that he was unable to charge. When he confronted the man about knowing he was the killer, the man not so much as flinched. It seemed that the killer had to also be cold and detached to do what he did in the basement of the hi-fi shop. The detective told Moore to tell him about the man he was thinking of. He said that six months ago, on October 5th, 1973, he was called to investigate the death of a young black Air Force sergeant stationed at the Hill Air Force Base, which was just south of Ogden. The victim, Sergeant Edward Jefferson, was found in his Ogden apartment, murdered on his couch, while he appeared to be sleeping. His hands were folded peacefully over his chest, and after following many leads, The best guess he had was a man everyone called Dale from the West Indies. Finally, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations had finally identified Dale. His name was Dale Perry, and he was from Trinidad. From records and witnesses, Moore had pieced together the following story on Perry. Perry had been at Jefferson's apartment the previous Sunday afternoon, taping some music. When Jefferson's key ring, including keys to his apartment and his 1971 Grand Prix, had suddenly disappeared. Though the apartment was searched thoroughly, the keys were not found until Perry returned the following day and suggested that they search again. Miraculously, during the second search, the key ring had been found. Jefferson became suspicious, investigated the matter, and discovered that Perry had actually stolen his key ring, gone to a base locksmith, forged the name Curtis Alexander, and duplicated the keys to his apartment and his car. Jefferson changed the ignition on his car and had the landlord install new locks in his apartment. He then confronted Perry about the incident, and the third airman, a friend of Jefferson's, overheard the two arguing, but wasn't close enough to hear exactly what was said. 
That's kind of, that's a ballsy move to steal someone's key ring and then say, "Oh, let's look for it again," and then it's there. Well, but, it's super but you suspicious, made... and it's really stupid, actually. Which shows, well, and okay, I don't want to get you too far into there? it. No, no, gotcha. no. Okay. I will say this though: like, it's so funny to hear, like, "Oh yeah, we just changed changed the ignition of a car." It, that would then, never be able to happen. The whole like back then, you could you could like fucking buy the part and just do it yourself. But, oh like, yeah, we'd now, never be able to do it. Now it's everything's just electronic. Well, now so. you also wouldn't be able to make a copy of a key like that. Actually, you can make a copy of a key to unlock the door, but only the door. Right. Yeah. I think he wants. I think the whole thing is that he wanted to drive it. I just want to like make my listeners just know educated, stuff. Yeah. know things. Yeah. No, I know you can't make a copy of a key ignition key because I lost keys to my car once, and it costs like four hundred dollars to get the key replicated, and my uh-huh. dad didn't talk to me for. Yeah. A few weeks, so I remember. Well, don't lose your keys. <laughs> what the hell? I know. I, wh- whatever. Sorry, Dad. Okay. So two days later, after this argument that took place, Jefferson's body was discovered on the couch of his living room. A pillow over his face and a light coverlet pulled up over the pillow. His face was puffed and bruised, with bits of brain exposed and thick pus oozing from his nose and eye sockets. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Gross. I'm sorry. A bayonet had been driven repeatedly through his face. A bayonet. A bayonet. Great. The first blow killing him instantly. Thank God. Oh, I'm so sorry, Sergeant Jefferson. The murderer had used such power that the weapon had been driven so deeply that the blade had gone all the way through Jefferson's brain and fractured the man's, the man's skull on the other side. Wow. That's insane. <sighs> yeah. So... Um, if Perry did this, think about the rage that could be caused over an incident over stealing someone's keys. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's actually, the bayonet kind of makes me feel like it's the same as the pe- the ballpoint pen. Yeah, that is very similar. Kind of, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and this is, it. they're both Air Force men, so they did have, you know, obviously a lot of access to weapons. Moore had viewed the Jefferson murder as particularly cold and unfeeling. He saw the present murders the same, but here there was a new dimension that he had not been aware of in the Jefferson case. After hearing the eyewitness story, Moore surmised that the killer had actually enjoyed seeing people suffer, that he had calculated the damage that would be done each time he fed them the caustic or pulled the trigger. It was this aspect of the new murder that prevented Moore from imagining Perry as a subject. So, when he's in the basement, he does tell the detective, this guy, Perry, would be the kind of guy you're looking for. But I don't know if it's the guy, because the crimes are a little different. Whereas the first one was an instant murder, but then it was overkill. This one's a little bit more cat and mouse game that he was seeing in the basement. Right, but people can't escalate. Exactly, yes. Perry never faced charges for the murder of Jefferson. There was no evidence and no witnesses. Moore said he thought he'd never forget seeing the stone-cold demeanor during the interrogation. The man seemed to enjoy it all. While Courtney fought for his life, going through surgery after surgery, the detective thought about looking for Dale Perry, maybe questioning him. The media was also looking for anyone who would talk. They finally found their guy. The ambulance driver agreed to talk. He said it was one of the worst things that he had ever seen, and it took him right back to Korea. Men with their hands tied behind their back, shot right in the head. That's what it reminded me of, he said. Korea. I just never thought I'd see it again. Not here. Not where I live. 
As the ambulance driver told the media everything he knew, two little boys, ages 12 and 11, were dumpster diving on the Air Force base. Their fathers were sergeants and they lived on base. The boys loved diving for soda bottles that they could get five cents for at the recycling center. They had cleaned out two dumpsters and were headed to a third in front of barracks 351. After they jumped in, they found two purses, credit cards, checks, and wallets, including driver's license of three men. The boys came to the conclusion that this must be a robbery. There was only one thing to do. Tell their moms. Smart kids. Yes. They came to the right conclusion. The boys put everything they found in the, pur- in the purses and put the purses in their boxes with all the bottles. As the boys were dragging their heavy boxes across the parking lot, Airman Robert Weldon, who was 18 years old, came across the two boys. He laughed at the sight of them, two small boys trying to carry such large heavy boxes, bigger than they were themselves. He asked the boys if they needed help, and they agreed. It was then Weldon saw the purse. Weldon asked the boys what they were doing with it, and the boys explained that they had found it and they're bringing it to their mothers. Well, Weldon told them that he could take care of the stuff and return all the missing property, but the boys looked at him suspiciously. They basically gave him the third degree to make sure he would do the right thing. Pretty funny. It's actually really funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, Weldon promised that he would. And he looked through the bags to try and find a phone number that he could call. Eventually, he found a checkbook that belonged to Michelle Ainsley. And in the fold of the checkbook was a phone number to call if it ever went missing. So he called the phone number. When members of the Ainsley household picked up the phone, they informed the man that Michelle was dead. And he nearly had a heart attack. He got so nervous that he just kept repeating his Air Force credentials over and over again. Like, what his number was, where he lived, what barracks he stayed at. He was nervous because he, he found a dead woman's purse. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody would. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd be, I'd be scared shitless <laughs> oh my to God, even call. Yeah. So he told Michelle's brother to call the police and that he would call the air police. Both men hung up the phone. 30 minutes after the discovery of the purses, a call came in to the Ogden police station in response to the appeals being aired by the police over the radio. Corporal Cecil Fisher took the call. The call transcript reads as follows. This is Corporal Fisher. I think I know who did this hi-fi job, the voice said on the other end. Fisher waited for the band to continue. I'm not a rat or anything. And if somebody just robbed a place or done something else that wasn't so bad, I probably wouldn't even call. But on this, I want to help if I can. It's good that you called, Fisher reassured him. What can you tell me? I heard on the radio that you're looking for two black guys driving a van. That's right, said Fisher. I know who these guys are. They drive a light blue van, a Chevy with mag wheels. One's name is Dale Perry. He's the short one. The other is William Andrews. Andrews has the van. How do you know it's them we're looking for? asked Fisher. I know for a fact, said the man. I heard them talking about it. They said they weren't going to leave any witnesses. The caller stopped talking, waiting for Fisher to say something. Though at the time, he went into no further detail about what he had heard the men say. Sometime later, he explained how he knew Perry and Andrews were the killers. So this is from the court trials, because the man will testify. A couple of months before this all happened, Andrews and I were on barracks cleanup duty. 
we were both being punished for something. While we were working in the barracks there, he'd come down to my room sometimes and I'd go up to his. Kinda got to be friendly. So I don't know, I guess one night he needed a ride into town, and he was tripping on some speed and other drugs. He was pretty heavy doper. Anyway, I had my girlfriend with me. You know, you're not allowed to take girls into the barracks, but we both went up and stopped in and had some joints. He showed me his stereo he had, and he said Perry got that for me. So apparently Perry stole it. And he showed me a lot of clothes and stuff that Perry had gotten him. He thought Perry was a real neat guy. Then he showed me a couple of toy cars he kept his drugs in. I didn't even know he kept stuff like that right there. He was just bragging up everything. And I guess we were talking about how it would be nice to have money. And he told me about another bank that him and Perry and somebody else had planned to rob. They had it all planned out. Then after that, we somehow got to talking about stereos. And for some reason, he said, One of these days, I'm going to rob a hi-fi shop. And if anyone gets in my way, I'm going to kill him. Just like we saw on Magnum Force. Do you know how a prostitute dies during Magnum Force? How? She has to drink Drano. Oh, so this is something he's... Plans. Saw in a movie. Okay. I planned it. Hmm. This is Andrews speaking. Then the man goes on to say, I really don't think Andrews would shoot anybody or make him do anything. I don't think he was smart enough. He was just kind of screwed up. I don't really know Perry, and I'm glad I didn't. I think everybody did what they could to stay away from him. So, back to the call, Fisher's gonna say, hold on, let me get those names down. And after a moment, he said, okay, do you know where I can find these guys? And the caller reveals that they live in the same barracks as he does. 351. No. Yep, the barracks, out. they just threw all this stuff right in the dumpster behind their barracks. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Could you imagine yeah. you, like, you're pretty much living in the same barracks as right. a killer? So now here's a little bit of a, pro- uh, like, not problem, but an insight we see into the relationship between the killers. It seems like Perry is the mastermind and Andrews is just kind of doing everything and he's eager to please um, Perry and try and do everything that he wants to do. So Perry is definitely the mastermind. Andrews seems to be his his sidekick that's trying to impress him and wants to go along with this fantasy and this plan that Perry has. Okay, Fisher said again. I have to give this information to my sergeant and see how he wants me to handle it. Is there a number where I can reach you? He asked the caller. I'm calling you from a payphone at Kmart, but you can reach me at my girlfriend's number in a few minutes. He gave Fisher the number. If you need me, call me there and we'll talk. Fisher notified his superior officer immediately. He then contacted, his superior officer then contacted the prosecutor, Robert Newey. Newey told him that what they would need is to know that that man would testify in court. So Fisher is going to call the informant back at his girlfriend's number. And he said, the only way this is going to stick is if you testify in court. And the man agreed to do it. It seemed that, I mean, this guy was also in the Air Force, but the Air Force in general was very ashamed of the fact that these two men were in the Air Force. Yeah. Because if they never were in the Air Force stationed at this base, that would have never happened. It's like with this case, so many things happened to make it happen. You know what I mean? Right. And like a lot of things just had to fall in line. Right. Like they had to be in the Air Force base at that time. Brent went to San Francisco. So the two were there at the shop. Right. The people came in to look for them. It was like everything was happening just because, you know? Yeah. So the Ogden police wanted to arrest Perry and Andrews. 
but the fact that they were residents of a military base complicated things and slowed the process for the arrest warrant. The Ogden police watched over the Air Force barracks to make sure that the men weren't trying to escape. On one occasion, the two men tried to leave the barracks, but were denied and had to return to their rooms. Finally, the arrest warrant came through, and without incident, the two men were brought in. As the men were being brought out of their barracks and put into the police cars, the entire barracks emptied. Every man, woman, and child on that base was cheering as Perry and Andrews were taken away. The Air Force didn't want anyone to think that this was condoned by them. After their arrest, the two men gave up their third accomplice. Remember in the beginning, Courtney heard two men upstairs as the tall man was pointing the gun at him? Yeah. There was a third man in the van. Hmm. And they gave him up pretty quick. Of course. His name was Keith Roberts, and Roberts was promptly arrested as well. In a controversial decision, the three men were tried together, which I think is very strange. Do you think it had something to do with them being in the Air Force, or no, not at all? No, I, I don't. I think that it had something more to do with the fact that they didn't want the cost of the trials. Oh, okay. I can understand. And they kind of wanted to put them all away for the maximum sentencing, because in the trial of Roberts, they wanted the jury to also hear, this is what he sat and let happen. Got it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they were tried for three counts of first-degree murder and robbery. The other counts of, like, kidnapping, tort, like, all of those other things, they didn't want to charge them with in case these charges didn't stick. So they okay. were waiting. The court hearing began the next month, and the jury was selected very quickly. The jury consisted of 11 men and one woman. They were all white. Hmm. So that's going to cause a little bit of controversy there. Yeah. Doesn't really sound like a jury of their peers. No. The defense's case was that because of the stress that Walker was under, Oren Walker, he wasn't able to properly identify the two men. That's really the only thing the defense could say. So that was like the basis of their case. Right. But I mean, like, if you think about it this way, it's it's one piece of the pie. You know what I mean? It's like just one part of it. You know, I don't know. I think that this, I mean, the case is so heavy against them. That's really the only thing their defense attorney <laughs> yeah. could run with there. Especially because Perry wasn't really helping. Um, Andrews, I don't know, I'm in reading the court transcript and the book, I'd be very curious to know what the IQ of Andrews was. Because I feel like... Do you think he was impressionable? Very much so, when it comes to Perry. And, very, and you even see that continue into them throughout their time in jail, where it's the same thing. He is just, like, enamored with Perry. Okay. By the time of the trial... Oren Walker was able to testify, but Courtney Naisbitt could not. The entire courtroom was in tears as Oren Walker recalled his last hours with his son. Walker testified for a day and a half about what happened in those four hours. He later recalled that he made sure that even though it broke him inside to watch everything, everything, that all of those people had to endure so he could tell their stories. As stated, Courtney Naisbitt was not able to testify due to the fact that his amnesia was very strong. He had fallen into a coma after his multiple surgeries to remove the bullet from his brain. He had awoken from the coma, but he was only a shadow of his former self. It was difficult for him to interact with his family and the nurses. 
he would just scream and curse at them. Eventually, he had to be transferred to another hospital to go through a more rigorous physical therapy and psychological program. Byron Nesbitt took the stand, and he told the jury exactly what his family was going through and what it was like for him and his children to know what their loving mother endured during the last few hours of her life. When asked about having to listen to the testimony of Dr. Nesbitt, Dale Perry had this to say. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I can't even remember Nesbitt's testimony in detail. It made me mad the way he was obviously playing for the jury's sympathy. In his voice and characterizations, it was obviously rehearsed. He'd stop and take a big swallow in the middle of his sentence and bow his head. I think he talked about his son, how he couldn't eat or something, and he'd pause and just say the right words when he was talking. Two or three of the jurors were looking at me hard, like they were going to kick my ass or something. It was obviously rehearsed. You could tell it. Any novice in the courtroom could tell. (laughs) I thought it was gross myself. But then, I was on Valium. I had a I-don't-give-a-damn attitude. That's the way I felt. I thought it was disgusting, the details he got into. Sorry sorry to disgust you. Sorry, dude. The part that really made me sick was when I had to get another Valium was when the pictures were all over the place. I felt faint. They had to have about 40 or 50 pictures of the color burns on the people's faces where the Drano came down onto their shoulders. The girl was naked and they showed a close-up bullet. They showed a close-up of the bullet in her, I think. I can't remember exactly where it was at. It was generally gross. They had pictures of the whole room down there. The court broke for lunch and I told my lawyer, I think I need another Valium. And he let me see the doctor. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. You did this, buddy. Sorry, dude. Sorry we're totally inconvenienced. Yeah, really. Well, at this point, Perry maintained that he had never been involved in the crimes. He said he had no idea where the hi-fi shop was in Ogden, Utah. He said he'd never been there. He has no idea what they're talking about. So this is going to really suck for Andrews because Andrews is so obsessed with Perry that he, and because they're all being tried together, he can't break from his defense. So because Perry won't admit that this happened, Andrews has to maintain the same thing. Whereas if Andrews' defense could have been, I was being manipulated by this guy and I didn't participate in any of the physical murders, like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. He, he could have probably gotten a lesser sentence. He suffered for it. Right. However, the evidence, no matter what Perry was trying to maintain, was very overwhelming. One of the most convincing things was the witness that overheard them having a conversation about killing people during a robbery like they saw in Magnum Force, and the purses and wallets found outside their very own barracks. Roberts, now he was the driver, the one that the victims never saw, was only convicted of the robbery and was sentenced to imprisonment with the possibility of parole. Roberts was paroled in 1987, and he has not had an arrest since his release. So it seems like he really kind of turned his life around. Okay. That's the whole goal of the system, right? Yeah. So during the trial, it was revealed that Perry and Andrews had robbed the store with the intention of killing anyone they came across. And in the months prior to the robbery, they had been looking for new ways to commit the murders quietly and cleanly. The two of them repeatedly watched the film Magnum Force, in which a prostitute is forced to drink Drano and then shown immediately dropping dead. Perry and Andrews decided that this would be an efficient method of murder and decided to use it in their crime. Dale Perry, who was 21 when the crime was committed, was born and raised in Trinidad. 
He moved to Brooklyn, New York at 17 and joined the Air Force at 19. Perry was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated robbery on November 20, 1974, seven months after the crime. He was sentenced to death. The day that Perry was sentenced to die was the first day that Courtney Naisbitt was able to leave the hospital. While in prison, Perry changed his name 27 times. He said he didn't want to continue to bring shame upon himself or his family. Going through like letters that Perry is going to write, it seems not that he changed his name 27 times because of the shame factor. He was very manic in his like ideas. While in jail, he kept writing letters saying how he's going to be the richest man in the world and he's going to get out and he's going to just become this like multimillionaire. And then in every letter, he's like, and because of my new idea, I'm changing my name to this. Because of this new idea, I'm changing yeah, my name to that. Place. Yeah. yeah. At his last appeal, at his last appeal hearing, he did something that nobody thought he would do. He admitted to the murders. He said that he killed three people, but he didn't intend to. He only wanted to rob the store. When he explained why the murders took place, he started blaming Carol Nesbitt and said that she got him very upset because she was yelling the N-word at him. Um, Courtney has denied that this happened, and so did Oren. And in private letters, Andrews also admitted that that never happened, that Carol never said that. Right. But while he was explaining that Carol was doing this... Courtney was sitting in the back of the courtroom and he had to walk out of the room. So after the exhaustion, I mean, obviously this didn't work for him, for Dale Perry or whatever his name was at that time. So after exhaustion of appeals, Perry was executed by lethal injection on August 28th, 1987. And since Utah's had the death penalty in 1851, they've only had like 53 people executed. So they're not very big on their executions. Right. Um, There's still lethal injection, but also um, at their time when they could have been executed, they could have chose firing squad, but they chose lethal injection. So after Perry is executed on August 28th, he is going to leave the only possessions that he had, which was $29, to William Andrews. Now, William Andrews was convicted on the same charges as Perry and was also sentenced to die. It was said that after being given the death penalty, Andrews showed remorse and that he was sobbing on his bunk. But Perry, who was just sitting on his bunk next to him, was just eating a bag of potato chips. He doesn't He, he never he doesn't cared. care. Yeah. His appeals process was a little more complicated than Perry's because Andrews was not present for the actual murders. This case was emotionally and racially charged from the start because all the victims were white and all the aggressors were black. Even though his appeals process was exhausted, the NAACP fought for his sentence to be commuted to life in prison because of two things. First, it wasn't a jury of his peers because if it was, there would have been African-Americans sitting on the jury. But there wasn't. And there was an opportunity to have that happen. But those weren't the jurors that were chosen. Second is the fact that there were people who were in jail in Utah for similar things, accessories to murder, that weren't given the death penalty. But the court is going to rule that the original decision of the court is going to be upheld because Andrews planned it with Perry. 
right? He told the eyewitness that that's what he was going to do. His intention was to kill everyone in there. And just because he chickened out the day of doesn't mean that he wasn't involved in the planning of the murder, pouring the liquid into the cup and holding the people hostage and not doing anything to stop it. So those crimes alone would have led him to face the death penalty. So that's why the decisions were Yeah, I mean, it was premeditated. They they definitely planned it out. So, I mean... So, despite the call for appeals, the federal courts are going to uphold the findings, and Andrews is going to be put to death by lethal injection on July 30th, 1992. The two survivors suffered from amnesia and were traumatized by their time spent in the hi-fi shop. Courtney was able to return to high school a year after the incident, and he graduated with his class two years later in 1976, making up all the work he missed. He remembered everyone on the bleachers standing up for him as he limped across the stage, working hard to unclench his hand so he would be able to accept his diploma. Because of his injuries he sustained, which caused short-term memory loss, he was forced to drop out of college. He was frustrated greatly with his inability to remember things. He suffered every year of his life from physical pain due to his injuries. He lived until the age of 44, passing away in June of 2002. During his life, Courtney went through difficult brain operations, and one of the only esophical reconstructions this country has ever seen. His whole life, Courtney fought a battle of being dependent on hospitals. He would do whatever he could to be admitted into a hospital and then refuse to leave once he got in. He was married twice and died with his family. Oren Walker is going to live a happy life, as happy as it could be, with his family and grandchildren while keeping the memory of his son Stan alive. He passed away at the age of 69, in February of 2000. The hi-fi murders are still considered as among the worst crimes ever committed in the state of Utah. And I would say it's pretty big. It's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Pretty Not just in Utah. Yeah, I know. Like, I want to put it up there as... In the country. Yeah. (laughs) The case is now taught to FBI trainees at the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia. And it's included as a sample case in the FBI's Crime Classification Manual. And this is a rough one to cover. And again, I want to thank Gary Kinder for writing the book Victim, The Other Side of Murder, 1982, to bring attention the the struggles of the victims, not just the crimes of the aggressors. It was a heartbreaking read, but it was a beautiful testimony to who the victims were and what they endured in their last hours of their lives. And of course, I didn't reveal every detail, so if you do want to go out and read that book, that's an amazing true crime story to read. But I do have to say that this is a, it's definitely a disturbing one because of the amount of torture that these people had to face. It's clear that Perry was the aggressor. My only thing that I question is that the way that the relationship worked between Andrews and Perry, where you have the dominant and I guess you could say the dependent. And that's kind of what Andrews was. You even saw it through their jail time. Like, they still stayed very close. Even in jail, when Perry had all these ideas about becoming rich, Perry was, uh, Andrews was right with him, thinking that he was going to do this with him as well. So, I I don't know. I wish we could have gotten just, um, maybe if there was a learning disability with Andrews. But I'm sure the NAACP tried to exhaust all 
possibilities of trying to get an appeal out there. But and I'm sure definitely a horrific. Hor- How do you stand by? He was upstairs. He right. could have. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure that they thought about that. You know, like he had lots of opportunities to stop it or just or to call the police. Right. All he had to do was call the police and leave. Right. It was his van. I mean, the only thing I, I would say is we've seen this in so many cases with murder or mm-hmm. just whatever that everything comes in duo. Like these people come in duos. You know what I mean? Right. And you know. We don't know his mental state, you know, if he was, you know, well, he definitely was impressionable. Yes. So, I mean, it's rough. It's a rough one. I think the only issue as far as the trial is they probably should have tried to get a jury of his peers. Yeah. Um, I mean, right. regardless, I mean, this was well, a... Well, I think also when you do a jury of your peers, it also has to do with the population size. Right. And in Utah at the time, there wasn't a big African-American population Really, the only reason that the two men were there was because of the Air Force Base. And it was actually better in their favor to be tried within the U.S. court system and not through military court because their trial would have been, it would have been the same outcome. Oh, yeah. And I'm actually shocked about that, too. Like, uh, Well, it didn't happen on base. Okay. So that's why. Is that why? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we would love to hear what you thought about this week's episode and what you think about the crimes if you have anything to add or anything you want to say you can reach out to us on instagram or twitter at true crime couple but we want to take this time to thank some of our patreons from october so we want to thank mildy ruth smith sarah jones jisoo kim increased her donation to ten dollars we love you that's so sweet of you ebony marlena Jennifer Johnson, Sherry Arnold, Brooklyn Roche, or Roach, I don't know how you pronounce that. I have I have students with the same last name, and they both pronounce it differently, Roach and Roche. Michael Ryan, Erica Larkin, Fallon Hoffman, Robin Johnson, Stacey Sewers, Monica Coy, Vanessa Fowley, Kirsten, Julie Essen edited her pledge to $5.00. And Taryn Quigley coming in strong with a $15 donation. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I forgot Susan. Can't forget Susan. All right. Thanks, guys, so much for your Patreon donations. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And if you want to donate to Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We have another episode coming out on Patreon this week. So we're excited to bring that to you. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye, guys.